this edition of Create the Village. The opportunity we have is to actually take what we know and have known for a long time and apply it to practice and to policy. My name is Egbert Perry. I'm the CEO and founder of The Integral Group, a real estate company that focuses on creating value in cities and rebuilding the fabric of communities. This is Create the Village, a podcast about the intersection of public policy and community development. Linda Blount has been on this podcast before. This is her second appearance, so I get second pleasure to chat with her about her her views on several subjects, but also for us to just have a conversation that I think and hope you'll find to be very interesting. And just by way of background, for those who were not involved or hadn't heard the first time Linda was on, I just want to give you a little bit of background on Linda. Uh, Linda joined the Black Women's Health Imperative in 2014. Um, She's the president and CEO, and it's the only national organization focused on Black women's emotional, physical, and financial health and wellness. Linda has overseen more than $20 million invested in Black women to prevent chronic diseases and HIV, ensure reproductive justice, and healthy maternal outcomes, and has advocated for policies that protect Black women's health. Uh, With probably 25-plus years of experience in the public for-profit and non-profit sectors, Linda has a pretty expansive career. She has an excellent career that includes successful tenures at Coca-Cola, at the Coca-Cola company, and at the U.S. CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, Before joining Black Women's Health Imperative, she was the first ever national president of health disparities at the American Cancer Society where she was responsible for leading the society's efforts to reduce cancer incidence and mortality among underserved populations and developing a national uh, health equity policy. She has extensive international health experience and has served as a consultant to government ministries in a number of countries, Germany, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Malawi, Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago, where uh, she has lived. She lived for about four years in Trinidad. She hadn't made it to Antigua, my home, but um, I'm sure that's in the future. Absolutely. A speaker, published author and advocate, uh, Linda is actually a champion for the rights of black women. That's as succinctly as you could could state what it is she's committed to. And she hails from Michigan. She holds a Master's of Public Health in Epidemiology from the University of Michigan and a Bachelor of Science in Computer Engineering and Operations Research from Eastern Michigan University. So, Linda, thanks again for joining us today. Um, More important, after the first time, thanks for coming back. Thank you. I'm happy that you asked me to come back. Well, I'm going to... I said a lot about the Black Women's Health Imperative, but I'm sure I didn't do justice. If you don't mind, in your own words, could you just remind 
the listeners of what that is and what the work is that you do. Oh, sure. And, and you did do it justice. Um, but just to, to add a little context, um, this is year 39 for us, wow. uh, being the only national organization focused on black women's health. And as such, our, our portfolio is broad. So we focus on chronic disease prevention and re risk reduction, maternal health and mortality prevention, reproductive justice, HIV prevention, and of course, all of this is undergirded by policy work, which we've been involved for for years to, to make sure that there are health promoting policies and that we uh, strongly discourage and advocate against health limiting policies. And what I bring to the Black Women's Health Imperative is research. I think I'm the first scientist who's been in this role. And so for the last seven or so years, we've been focused on translating research into information, tools, strategies that the everyday woman can use to be as healthy as she can, but also to make the case for policymakers, for business leaders, for the, for the philanthropic community about why they should invest in Black women's health and in the health of the Black community. And so we've had quite a run um, in helping women to understand what they need to do, helping policymakers understand what kinds of structures need to be in place, and helping the business community understand that Black women's health is absolutely a business critical uh, issue and, and to help them see what they can do to help improve the health of Black women and, and frankly, the, the broader community. So this past year has been interesting, as you can imagine. <laughs> it's been it's been busy, as you said. We've we've all learned the term epidemiology. No, a year ago, nobody ever even said that word, and and now it just trips off the tongue. So, uh, we have been involved in a number of conversations in many places that we just hadn't expected uh, last year. So, well, let's talk about last year because when you were on the create the village. Um, last year, I think it was April or so of 2020, um, we were really just a couple months, 60 days or so into the COVID pandemic. And at the time, the projected death rate was somewhere between 20 and 30,000 for both African-Americans and Latinos. Obviously, things turned out to be much more acute than forecasted, um, whether whether as a result of our own actions, lack of actions, whatever, the situation is more severe. And so according to some recently published reports I read, at least 60, almost 64,000 black lives have been lost to COVID-19. So how have you changed what you say to black women that you're working with? What do you tell them now? And how is that different from what you were saying maybe a year ago, and what should we expect over, let's say, the next 12 months? Well, I don't know if you remember back then, and it seems almost quaint now, doesn't it? Uh, we applied sort of known health disparities rates to, to COVID-19 infection rates and did a little bit of uh, prognostication. And we said back then in April, that if infection rates looked the way they, they were, if they continued the way we thought they were gonna be, and we, it was a little early yet to, to talk about death rates, but we, we did some back of the envelope analysis. We had projected that by 2023, 
we could lose 300,000 black people. So that, that was huge and it was, it was shocking, of course. And so you, you've mentioned this, this number of, of nearly 64,000, which is, is too many just mm -hmm. on its face. Mm -hmm. But people might say, well, see, you were, you were way off. Except we, we really, we don't know. What we do know is that 64,000 is a significant undercount. Mm -hmm. We know the rate of infections are much, much higher. Uh, we've seen 10 times higher in certain cities, certain communities across the country. And we know the death rate is two to three times higher for black people as compared with white people. So if we just apply what we know, we, you know without even doing any analysis, you know that the 64,000 is an undercount. But the other thing we know is data by race and ethnicity are sorely reported. We had a problem back then. The problem still exists. We're still not getting good data. But if we apply what we know from hospital data, I mean, people generally, if they get really sick, end up in the hospital. Some people do die at home, but some most end up in the hospital. So we do have race and ethnicity data for deaths. So if we just apply what we know from hospital data, then the number of black people who have died so far is probably in the 100, 110,000 range. Mm -hmm. okay. And so when you talk about looking forward, there's, there's the pandemic, which has taken too many lives. There's the economic fallout of the pandemic, which has caused so many people to lose jobs. The, sick, the fallout of that is people lose homes, so then they have to move in with relatives or friends. So we increase the density of housing. And when we look at what's happening economically, you have a lot of people who can't work from home. I get to work from home. You get to work from home. A lot of black women have to get on public transportation. They have to go to stores, to hospitals, many places where they often face not only an unmasked public, but an angry unmasked public, which raises their risk for infection and then, of course, death. So if we, if we combine, combine all those factors and knowing from the research, um, there's a, a term called deaths of despair, which happen... Uh, among low-income people, we know that about 89,000 black people die every year just from poverty alone. Mm -hmm. So if we apply that analysis, again, by 2023, maybe, and we have a vaccine, which is great. We didn't have that uh, last, a year ago this time, obviously, but we're still looking at probably 200, 250,000 deaths among the black community and something not too dissimilar for the Latino community as well. So when you, when you talk about what do I say to black women, I say remain vigilant, mm -hmm. double mask, keep a physical distance, wash your hands, you know, remind everybody around you to do the same thing, and, and be aware of what all of this means. And, you know, I know we're, we'll talk a little bit about vaccines, but... You know, I want black women to know as much as they can know about what's available so that they can make the best decisions for themselves. So let's stay on that a little bit and just drill a little deeper in the, what the findings are saying. So after surveying eight Metro Atlanta hospitals and, well, I should say Metro Atlanta and South Georgia, hospitals, the CDC reported that black patients, obviously this is something we already know, but that black patients were disproportionately 
represented among hospitalized patients. Um, I've also seen Georgia statistics that reported that more than 80% of the people that are hospitalized with the virus are African-American, but you know we're, we're only 30% of the population. I'm not sure that's the right percentage, but that's about it for Georgia. So what's your reaction to statistics like this? And what do, what do these numbers tell you about our healthcare system? So extrapolate away from just the severity of COVID-19. What does it say about our healthcare system and about our community? Yeah. You know, it's unfortunately, it's not surprising, um, particularly when you look at a state like Georgia and look at people who live outside of the city of Atlanta, so people who live in rural areas, their ability to access quality health care is actually fairly limited. A lot of ho- smaller hospitals have closed, so people live farther away from, from health care. But to your point, when you're in a rural area, when you're low income, when you are of color, you're at a particular disadvantage when it comes to health care. Doctors, we, we've talked about medical bias many times, and it is a real thing that COVID patients, the patients with diabetes, patients with cardiovascular disease are just less likely to get quality care if they are black, if they are brown. Um, we talk about these underlying conditions, which not only raise your risk for infection, but raise your risk for severe disease. That's true, we, we need social determinants of health. But of course, the real question we have to ask ourselves is why do the social determinants of health exist in the first place? Mm-hmm. And we know that is historical oppression, that is, that is racism, um, pure and simple. And so it gets manifest in what care people do and do not have access to. It gets manifest in terms of policies. You know, we have Georgia, I live in, in Atlanta, obviously we're in a state that chose not to expand Medicaid, so that limits the ability to, to get access to care. And, you know, 400 years later, um, we're still dealing with medical mistrust, mm-hmm. and we see it. It, it, it. it is not, unfortunately, a thing of the past. What comes to mind sort of right off is Dr. Susan Moore, who is a pediatrician in Indiana, suffering from COVID-19. She's in the hospital. She actually has recorded her experience on social media, tragically. She's talking to her physician colleagues. I know what's wrong. I'm in pain. Here's what I need. She could not get the health care as a physician. Mm. It's a black woman physician that she knew she should get. She could not get the standard of care and died. Uh, I think it was David Bell in Missouri had COVID-19, was turned away from the emergency department Three times he died of COVID-19 in the parking lot of a hospital. Mm. So when these things happen, you know, what people hear and see is, oh, this is not a system for me. I am not going to get good medical care. And unfortunately, they see it, you know, to your point, not just in COVID-19, but across the spectrum. And so that leads people to be less likely to seek help, help, to be less likely to believe what they're told by physicians, which all of, of course, ends up with them, with the black and brown populations in particular, suffering and dying needlessly. And I'll just say one more thing on 
on this issue is research is critical. You know, I've been talking for years about the lack of diversity, not only in clinical trials participation, but in researchers themselves. And again, in COVID-19, we saw an example. Dexamethasone, which seems to be effective at treating really severe disease, is less effective in black people as compared with white people. Well, there were no black people involved in those clinical trials. Mm -hmm. So that's not a surprise. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, we're in this situation, I think, where we certainly could learn from the past, mm-hmm. but also avoid repeating the mistakes of the past. We've got a vaccine. Now we have two, maybe three, um, if Johnson & Johnson comes online. We have an opportunity to look at what we know about the vaccine and make sure we do things the right way the first time, instead of contributing once again to disparities along, along race and ethnicity lines. So, so Linda, you, you really attacked two myths there, right? So one myth is for black people, it's an urban issue. And the truth is um, the, you probably have more access if you're in the urban area than if you're in the rural areas. Um, but, and so we really have to look at the, even if you're saying you're targeting a certain ethnicity, where they're situated just means they have at a, an absolute level, more or less access, but at a relative level, they'll always still have less access than the white population does. So that sure. just means you'll always have that disproportionate access issue. Uh, but the, the other thing that struck me as you were talking is, and you talked about the doctors and their experiences, well, the reality is there's, there are some people who say, well, you know, it's the, it's the uninformed that take the position that they don't want, they don't trust the system and so on and so forth. But if you really knew, you would trust the system. Well, there are individuals who absolutely knew better than most of us on, on uh, participating in this, yet they know that there's good reason to look at things askance because there is a bit of a justification for the mistrust in the system. I'll tell you, about three months ago, I was saying, okay, a whole long, long line of white folks have to get this COVID-19 before I go. I don't want to be at the front of the line. And it was half joking, but, but the other half means it's half serious. And that is, I said, I want to see how many toes and fingers fall off of people before I sign up because I don't inherently trust any of the institutions to behave properly if there's a chance to discriminate on the basis of race and class. It's a sobering thought that we really have to think about the psyche of delivering healthcare. So, yeah, and you would not be, you're, you're not wrong in having that sentiment. And you're, you are a very well-informed medical care consumer. You're yeah. highly educated. But what, what does one say when one says, well, Dr. Susan Moore died? Yeah. Recording on Twitter exactly what was happening. I mean, mm-hmm. if yeah. you're not a physician, you say, well, you know, if, if she couldn't get good care, <laughs> what, are, what are the chances for me if, right. if I get COVID-19? Sure. sure. Yeah. Well, so, so I'm not trying to lead our conversation down a rabbit hole. So I feel a little bit obligated to ask about the politicization of science and medicine, right? Um, 
How would you describe, especially in light of the last several years, the credibility of the CDC, the FDA, and just the medical profession on the whole in the eyes of the general public and with patients? Well, I have to say the CDC, Health and Human Services writ large, um, the reputation certainly took a hit these last few years, Mm -hmm. um, in in particular particular. this last year, um, and, and rightly so. But the thing I would say is those people who are working for CDC or NIH or FDA, those, those everyday workers, those individual contributors, not the leadership, those folks hung in there. They did what they were supposed to do. They, they, they gave it their best. I believe that. I believe they absolutely did their jobs. The challenge of her, of course, occurred with leadership. And leadership is, in many instances, appointed. And so the, the previous occupant of the White House appointed certain people to be in leadership of these agencies, and they were beholden to him. And so we got significant misinformation. We got disinformation. And we did not get a strategy or a plan in any way that could meet the needs or demands of, of COVID-19 or, or pandemic. So I, I understand how people would, again, rightly be distrustful, but I'm hopeful because those folks are gone now. Mm-hmm. There's, there's new leadership, which I believe understand and trust science believe in science, want to apply science, and believe in public health and want to do the right thing. So, so that I can infer from that that your confidence in the institutions have not been shaken because the overwhelming majority of what drives those institutions, that population of people that show up every day, are tried and true and committed to all the right things, it's the extent to which any of those institutions allow themselves to be politicized that we should be worried, right? I, I think so. I mean, I continue to talk to my colleagues at CDC, and they were all telling me exactly what they needed to say and what they were doing, but they were also telling me about how they were running into roadblocks with leadership. So now what they tell me is they are thrilled that they can finally not only do their jobs, but do their jobs in a way that they know will make a difference. So there's nothing lingering that worries you except we have some catching up to do. That's the big worry. We, right. we started from below sea level, and so um, we, we've got this hole is deep that we've got to dig ourselves out of um, from a public health perspective. But I think we've got people who are committed to doing that. So in light of COVID, George Floyd, the election a second impeachment, the insurrection, and probably a few other things I could name. What has the last year revealed about our country and our society? And I know that's a huge question and the answers are are many, but what policy prescriptions do you plan to advocate for at the federal and local levels on behalf of black women specifically? Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, Last year, apparently in March, we discovered health disparities were were a thing. And then a couple of months later, we discovered racism was a thing. 
Um, and then a few weeks after that, we discovered that racism and health were related and, and a thing. Um, so, and I'm, I'm, you know, not, I'm being flippant, but, but I'm, but I am being serious. You know, there, there was so much denial and you saw, Edward, the many, many companies, corporations who put out their statements, their anti-racism statements and their commitment to diversity statements and, and all of that. Um, but I've got to wonder, you know, does that really mean anything? And we'll see this year. We'll see. But what we know, obviously, is that that it's not race. Race is not a risk factor for health. Racism is a risk factor for health. And we there's plenty of research that looks at what happens with chronic racism, gender discrimination, oppression at at the at it, from an epigenetic perspective and how disease is expressed. The the opportunity we have is to actually take what we know and have known for a long time mm-hmm. and apply it to practice mm-hmm. and to policy. So to to that end, the Black Women's Health Imperative is going to launch a huge First, awareness campaign on racism and health. Because mm-hmm. what I heard more times than I can remember last year was, oh, I had no idea. Uh-huh. You know, we've been talking about this for a long time, but I still have people say, oh, I had no idea. So at a minimum, we want to get to the point where nobody can say they didn't know. Yes. And then we want to create the tools and the resources for employers, for funders, for policymakers to use to finally address what we know. So we just published our policy agenda. It's the second edition. It's on our website, bwhi.org, which spells out in great detail key policy issues for Black women's health and thus the Black community's health. We are working with the Congressional Black Caucus, the White House Council on on, uh, Black Women and Girls to make sure that the, these policies, for example, the Mommy Must policy, which is which came out of Senator Booker's office and Senate, then Senator Kamala Harris's office, and now is being sponsored by uh, Congresswoman Kelly and Joyce Hannah Beatty, to make sure that we understand the role racism plays in maternal health outcomes, for example. Mm-hmm. But there are a number of these these policy initiatives that we're going to be focused on, so people can't say they don't know. But more importantly, can then say, here's what we do know we can do to reduce avoidable mortality, reduce maternal mortality, but also get to a point where in businesses, in everyday life, walking down the street, people are not victimized and continually oppressed simply because of the color of their skin or country of origin. So, so, so Linda, we're kind of done, but this is a good place for us to just have a little bit more of a, a discussion or conversation. Because you know, you said how many times you heard and was surprised by the I didn't know, I didn't, I had no idea statement. And we're still hearing it today. Um, yeah. I was watching on the news yesterday where somebody had lost their job or they were suspended because um, of some of their remarks made as if to mock the fact that, well, yeah, you thought you were, you were woke before now, but there's no reason for anybody to be really woke until last year. Um, we all saw what happened with George Floyd, and I'm embarrassed to say that I actually believe a lot of these people 
had no idea. Yeah. You know, now, yeah. the, the outrage and the shock is that they could live in this country and have no idea. So, in the same breath, when they say, I had no idea, they really do not realize that they're saying more about themselves, their attention to reality, that they're just how oblivious they are to what they see every day and how they interpret what they see every day, that you almost want to say, okay, you're educated, you have more than a middle school degree, um, um, education, you have a high school, you really don't even have to be on an academic chart somewhere to just have basic common sense observing the environment around you. So if you do all of that and you are just realizing that there's disparity in our society, you need other kind of help. And I'm not sure we have a healthcare system to address that. Well, this is a case where ignorance is quite a luxury, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it is. You, this could never happen for you or for me right. to be that unaware. Right. But it is, as you know, very common. And yeah. so if we're going to make any progress, we've got to make sure that people can't hide behind the ignorance. Right. Um, because once you know, yes, then you can act. Yes. Now, fantastic. Well, Linda... Thank you. I am I'm sure, I hope, but I'm sure that the listeners got a lot out of this. Um, I'm always thrilled that you're out there on the field fighting every day. Um, black women have an advocate for their health, and, and that means that black kids have an advocate for their health because more often than not, that comes from the black woman um, a black man saying that, I have to eat a little bit of crow and say that. But um, So thank you very much for, for sharing your time with us today. As usual, it was a pleasure. And thank you so thank much, Egbert. Thank you for this opportunity. And I'm glad that you too are an advocate for black women's health. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Create the Village is produced by Rick White. Directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright The Integral Group. Mm-hmm.